The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all right, welcome to the broadcast or in hour number two. Thank you for rejoining us and a big thanks to our guest before the break, Sam Husseini. Really great insights into the invocation of the genocide convention. There's a lot of people that are interested in this and there's a lot of people pushing it. The question is who is going to be the first to step over the line? I think that's going to happen and I think it's going to be a lot sooner than people think. Then there's going to be a very difficult conversation at the UN level and it's going to be very embarrassing. That will that my friends is the emperor has no clothes moment that's exactly what's coming when that when that when that thing gets triggered that literally is the moment when everyone will stand and point at the emperor at his nakedness and uh, that emperor well at the moment the united states and call it israel as well anyway this has to be brought to a close somehow soon before this cascades into a third world war there's a lot of people that will be very happy if it did let's not kid ourselves there are beneficiaries there uh but uh, for the rest of the world i don't think it's going to be that great uh, unfortunately but there are people who believe that they can win and then wait it out and they have the resources and they're not going to be touched and they've got all their sort of assets and everything secure uh best laid plans of mice and men as uh, robert burns famously said in one of his great poems so over to europe uh this is interesting so all this talk about Ukraine's accession into the European Union and NATO, forget about NATO, that's a non-starter. But the EU, they're dangling that carrot in front of Ukraine. There's a few things standing in the way. One of them is Hungary and Viktor Orban. And Hungary has basically been kind of wavering on this issue. They're not so keen, uh, for obvious reasons, to welcome the Ukraine into the family of the European Union. And they've got a lot of good reasons for that, of course. And so the the Europeans are kind of exasperated. They can't believe they've got this dissension in the ranks there. Somebody doesn't think Ukraine would be a great addition to the European Union. I mean, what's not to like? Most corrupt country in the world suspended the free press, uh, criminalizing the church, uh, outlawing any opposition parties, uh, force conscripting, press ganging young and old men into the the war on behalf of NATO to die in the trenches, 400,000 of them so far. Hey, what's not to like about the Ukraine being in Ukraine? I mean, just have a Schengen border open there with the leading human trafficking, drug trafficking, uh, organ trafficking, all of that. And it's just fantastic. It's, it's all in the off. What's not to like for Europe, right? Well, not everybody's happy about that. So here's the Europeans are saying, we're going to stop Hungary from getting in the way on the voting of Ukraine. Very dangerous, very dangerous here. Because what they're, what they're effectively doing is pushing Hungary itself out of what little sovereignty you have in the European Union. Okay, When you join the European Union, you're already forfeiting a pretty big percentage of your sovereignty uh, in terms of uh, the, on, on a judicial level, legislative level, in terms of policy. Now with foreign policy, they're demanding a party whip on, on Israel, on Ukraine. 
So already you're eroding your sovereignty. Now you can't even vote against countries you don't like joining the EU here. So the possibility of Hungary uh, temporarily forfeiting its voting rights within the European Union is being considered. This is from the Financial Times of London. So legitimate source here. So this comes at heightened discussions after Budapest opposed a 50 billion euro four-year financial aid package for Ukraine during the last uh, EU summit. This is just this past week. So why Hungary did not ultimately block uh, the initiation of EU accession talks with Kiev. They're in talks as early stages, of course. This is the courting stage. As previously threatened, Hungary would. The Central European nation maintains its having a separate stance uh, when it comes to Ukraine joining the bloc. So Viktor Orban the prime minister of Hungary, uh, definitely an outlier politically. Uh, in Europe here. So he's been consistently critical of Brussels' plans to absorb Ukraine, to, to bring Kiev into the fold. He's got a lot of good reason for that, of course. So, however, however, Financial Times is reporting here, citing anonymous officials, take it at face value for what it's worth. Some EU members are considering activating Article 7 of the Treaty of the European Union, which allows states to lose certain rights if persistently in breach of EU, EU core principles. See, that's where the rub is, EU core principles. So if you're in breach of core principles and that you're not observing EU values, uh, then you can then be subject to Article 7. The other member states can impose that on you. So what are these EU core principles? That's the big question. What are these EU values? Now, they might say that, well, it's they'll give you all these platitudes about democracy and freedom and the Ukrainians are bravely fighting against Russian aggression and all the rest of it, okay? So, but what about all the negatives? And that's what Hungary's position is. Look, there's all these negatives here. Not not only that, but it's geopolitically in terms of having the uh, terrible situation spill over into Europe. It's already spilled over. If you look at the amount of people that have immigrated from Ukraine, let, permanently left the country, they're never coming back. There's no way they're coming back. Not Not for a generation. Right now, they are literally in the social spending safety net of Europe. And it's much better. It's a definitely a better standard of living than what they're going to get in Ukraine, which effectively doesn't have an economy, nor a functioning currency. And the country is a basket case. What's left of the country at that? So that's the situation. So what, what what's Europe's business and nation building here? I mean, what are they actually absorbing into the union? And what they're absorbing is a liability. So Hungary is taking a very strong position on this. It's a rightful position, a lot according to people in the know. But unfortunately, a lot of people in Brussels are completely in la-la land uh, when it comes to this. So that's going to be interesting. If they go that route, then mm, Hungary could reconsider its European Union status, perhaps. Uh, it's possible, maybe not. So the, the problem with the EU and getting out of it is there are a lot of benefits for weaker, smaller countries. There's a lot of benefits. Now, the UK was allowed to to, to bolt out because it's a kind of stronger, maybe robust uh, economy with a big financial sector, basically a commonwealth globally. They can stand on their own two feet without Brussels. But some of the smaller countries, it means a lot to them having access to the markets. And you saw how painful the divorce was between the UK and Brussels. Uh, smaller countries like Hungary, certainly Cyprus was in its rights. 
to get out of the union after the financial collapse. Europe didn't do them any favors, uh, really, financially. So they were well, well within their rights, but as we reported at the time during the Cyprus collapse, uh, when we actually covered that on the ground, that story, I remember talking to people in Cyprus, they're saying, we earned our path into Europe. The average, you have to think, it's not just what the average, it's not what the politicians are saying today, but what are the, what's the average view of the average person on the street and the average voter in some smaller European countries are saying, we've earned the right to be in the big club in Europe and all the benefits, market access, Schengen travel, all of that. A lot of benefits that come with that. Of course, there's a lot of drawbacks too, economically, but that's not always a, what's first and f foremost in the minds of voters. There's other issues too that that play uh, when it comes to people's feelings uh, and views on issues like this. So we'll, we'll see about Hungary. We'll see. I don't know if it's going to be enough uh, for the people there to want to bolt, but certainly this is a big uh, erosion of one's own remaining sovereignty by not even being allowed to have an opinion of who comes in the union, especially if they're your next door neighbor and you know them very well. Imagine if you're your neighbor who you know is corrupt, who you know is laundering money, who you know is running human trafficking, uh, smuggling weapons, basically the worst of the worst. Everyone knows they're corrupt. Everyone in the neighborhood knows they've been corrupt forever. And recently they've been given a sort of unlimited credit line from the United States and using it to engage in more corrupt activity, pilfering more money, smuggling out of the country, patting their their, their nest eggs, as it were. Uh, that's Ukraine. So knowing that if you're their neighbor, you're trying to tell the rest of the world, uh, yeah, we don't actually want to officially incorporate these guys because they're really corrupt. Um, and then you're being told to shut up. In fact, you don't have any say in the neighborhood anymore. You must accept Ukraine. You must accept Ukraine. That's how Hungary's feeling right now. And I believe they're not alone. I believe they're not alone. And certainly there's, there's some potential divergence in the European Union. If France left, if France followed the Frexit movement uh, with Filippo and some of these other uh, vanguard uh, politicians in that country, uh, that would be the end of the European Union project as we knew as we know it. This is why you have globalists like Emmanuel Macron installed into power in places like that, being run by U.S. consultancy firms like McKinsey and Co. It's just the way it is, and that's how you keep continuity in a technocracy. There's nothing democratic about the European Union. There never was, there never will be. That's not what it's about. So anyway, I think anybody that's honestly looking at that will tell you the same. Let's take a break right now with TNT Today's News Talk. Let's connect with our guest on the other side, author Trish Wood. Looking forward to this conversation to find out more about her work and how it relates to the events of the day. All this and more on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are a generation apparently trained 
trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're in the second hour, hour number two, this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. It's been a glorious Monday. We've got a big week ahead of us. Okay, we're just getting getting our feet wet this week, and uh, we'll be pivoting right now, uh, talking about more broader issues. I want to welcome onto the stage very special guest, author Trish Wood. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show, Trish. And I'll, I'm, I'm calling you an author uh, but I know you're an, also an investigative journalist, but I'm looking at your work and I'm also kind of considering bracketing you as a kind of peace activist, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that a good character, characterization? Well, you know what? I, I believe now that one could probably say that any neutral, observant journalist who is paying attention is probably could call themselves a peace activist these days. I just, you know, if you've been around long enough, as I have, even going back, I didn't work during the Vietnam War, I was too young, but it certainly was a, a dark shadow over my early years of journalism. And it, we, we know now that they all start on a big lie. None of them make sense. Innocent civilians die. And it's kind of like Lucy and Charlie Brown in the football. You know, she always says she's not going to pull it away if he'll only kick it. And he kicks it and she pulls it away and then she does it again. And what's interesting for me about this particular time, which is the Gaza time, which I have found, and I think you might feel this way too, Patrick, very personally destabilized by how this whole thing is rolled out, both from a propaganda perspective, the likes and manner and depth of which I have never seen even during COVID, and COVID was a new low, but also in the the, the comments from the kind of aggressive commentariat on social media who that, that show that they really have absolutely no clue what they're talking about. So a terrible idea of an atrocity or something awful that happens in, in Gaza is met with this, well, Hamas did this, or, or the Palestinians never wanted peace anyway. So they just, I mean, it's just incredible. And I'm starting to feel like maybe part of this is the dehumanizing stuff that happened to us during COVID. And maybe the big scary they, whoever they are, the globalists want to do it more because the dehumanizing of the Palestinians, and I literally mean people do not see them as human beings, is so complete that we are watching, as you well know, because you have been doing some wonderful social media on this, it's a place of refuge for me to, to go to your feed. People literally do not seem to care that women and children are being blown to literal bits and worse are the ones who live either trapped in the rubble, which I'll talk about in a minute, or with these terrible 
grotesque Johnny got his gun kind of, of injuries and amputations. I saw one kid with a miss, literally a missing face who was being treated, had a couple of missing limbs. And I just, I thought, how are we cheering this on? There's something strange and terrible has happened in, in the world. And also I would say in Israel, because there is still a lot of support for the war. Whether the Israeli people are seeing what you and I see when we dig through the credible sources coming out of Gaza, which is primarily Al Jazeera, who are doing an amazing job. Um, whether the, the Israeli people are seeing that or not, I don't, I don't know. But what I'm, what I'm seeing in the, the polling and the like uh, is very, very scary to me. I, I just don't get it. I, I, how these people who have been historically, you know, they fought against apartheid. They stood with the ANC. They're some of the most lovely peaceniks and human rights advocates in the world live in the state of Israel. And I'm looking at this inversion of morality that is shaking me to my core. No, and it's, you know, the personal attacks uh, that one is getting as well, even from my former, you know, uh, uh, colleagues in the, you know, war for the truth with COVID and the vaccine mandates and all that okay. stuff, inclu including people in Israel. Uh, I was recently attacked by one of them, basically uh, I did a propaganda space, just doing an audit of all the COVID propaganda we had in Israeli contingent on there. And one of these uh, people uh, attacked me recently for being a propagandist because I was just pointing out that. Uh, there was a thing called Palestine before 1948, which really triggered okay. uh, the Israeli uh, Hezbara uh, information ops online. And I'm getting these nasty DMs. And it's nothing compared to what the Palestinian people on Twitter are getting. So, some of our, yeah. our colleagues have shared the, the threats that they're getting. And I'm, I'm like, what's triggering this hate, this vile hate? And then this, I think it's nihilism, Trish. There's some kind of nihilistic uh, wave that is running through the modern population where they're suspending their empathy uh, and, and they're just being led by, I don't know what it is, being led by emotions or being led by this other part, like a reptilian part of their brain or yeah. something. Amygdala. Is, is maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Because yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's not normal. There's not that it's breath. Not you, know, the, you know that pause, that beat, that beat you take when you say, oh, no, okay. Yeah calm down what we can't be going past that threshold and that scares Boy, me because I, I, it's it's yeah, gonna go it's gonna happen people are gonna say well let's just get it over with and have world war three i'm starting to hear that now well every, i agree with everything you just said i also i think you and i maybe were straddling the same kind of um coalition of people right i i'm a, like a former pretty lefty uh like a bernie person and then a whole bunch of stuff happened. The legacy media went crazy, and Bernie sold out, and um, and and Donald Trump was saying things I found kind of interesting for the working man, and so I became this kind of person who could operate on on many fronts. And then I became a COVID. So I was a science journalist when Tony Fauci first was ruining everybody's lives under HIV and AIDS. 
Uh, so I knew something terrible was coming. And so I, I, I started the podcast to deal with the COVID stuff. So that coalition of people is left and right and Tucker Carlson and Naomi Wolf, who's a family. I mean, it's a really interesting bunch of people. And the Israel-Gaza thing has blown that up in ways that, and this is the truth, people have been with me for almost four years who support me, they send money, they send touching notes, I know who their kids are, et cetera, et cetera think that I've lost my mind and that I've become a Hamas supporting weirdo because I want to stop bombing women and children, get a ceasefire and then sort out life for the Palestinians, right? That is now something that is uh, putting up a barrier between myself and people who were followers. And this scares me because I loved I love that Tucker Carlson was having lots of left-wing people on a show. I thought that was extremely cool and uh, maybe a way to fight back against the uniparty that's all in on every war and all the other stupid stuff that's going on in the world right now. But that's broken apart. And guess what? Tucker's been silent on Israel-Gaza. He did one little dog whistle of hosting Candace Owens, who feels like you and I do, but he hasn't actually said anything about it, which is really interesting. Yeah, he's, he's pretty much played that one uh, down the middle. I'm hoping something interesting uh, manifests itself soon on that. Certainly, he would be somebody that people would be looking for to break you know, break the ice. I think he kind of did that, as you said, with uh, the Candace Owens interview. But yeah. it, I think it requires a lot more, Trish, because this is one of those defining moments of our generation in history. I mean, you can't, like, sit this one out. No, and you, just, you said it. I, I was actually going to say for the first time, on this show that I believe that there is a kind of mass hysteria going on. People are kind of crazy. I think that, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters who I have a ton of sympathy for and understand their history very well, although I'm not Jewish, I try to understand it, um, are way, I think, way more afraid than they should be. They, 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 I don't know where this is coming from. If it's historic and it's just sort of in the DNA now, I appreciate that and that's fine, but let's work that through. Instead of censoring all the people who are like, oh, free speech, total absolutist free speech, and are saying, no, you can't protest on college campuses, that's really bad. So we have in my, we have the worst of all circumstances. We have, in my view, a war that cannot be morally sustained. It, it just cannot. We are watching, I'm going to use the word, a genocide in real time, and you cannot argue with that. But also, while that's happening, a population that really does not understand, and you cannot argue with that. But also, while that's happening, a population that really does not understand the history of the region and a massive new frontal attack on free speech in North America under the guise of something that you can't really argue with, right? You can't say you don't have a right to be fear anti-Semitism. You can't really say that. It's not acceptable to say that. So, so what do we do when guys like Bill Ackman, who is a gazillionaire, are punishing people for allowing students to protest on campus with the caveat some of them were saying dumb stuff for sure but not in the way that was as threatening as has been reported by the media and and i think not enough that you want to clamp that right down anyway that's it's a that's a much more dangerous a much more dangerous uh, thing to do so i see a perfect storm of trouble coming 
Yeah, the, uh, just I'm going to touch on that issue about um, anti-Semitism because the reason you can't argue against it is because it's undefinable. It's an arbitrary yeah. label. It's not specific. Uh, and if you actually know your ethno your ethnography and your history, you'll know that uh, everybody in that region is a Semitic person, including Palestinians. Yeah. So yeah. it's a bit of yeah. it's a bit ridiculous, a bit of a misnomer, an oxymoron to say mm -hmm. that uh, so, you know opposing israel or supporting palestinians means you're anti-semitic because palestinians are semitic people as well and this is why that term was chosen the term was chosen because it's vague because it's arbitrary and whenever you have a vague or arbitrary term you can make you can shape shift it to, to mean whatever you want and use it to attack your political opponents because if you're specific and you would say that the specific charge correct charge would be you're 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 bigoted towards Jewish people, or yeah. you're being racist towards Jewish people. So you'd have to prove that the, the statement was racist. So uh, opposing Israeli government policy can't possibly be bigoted nor racist. So then, but that's not that's not the conversation we're having. And I think there's a, a level of I intellectual dishonesty that's baked oh. into this that I think is um, it's brought down governments. Jeremy Corbyn was the most popular uh, political yeah. leader in the UK, maybe in labor history. He was ousted out of politics. His number two, Ken Livingston, ousted. Chris Williamson, ousted. And tons of labor members, many of them Jewish, kicked out of the party for, quote, being anti-Semitic. Um, so being able to enforce that yeah, I think it's hugely damaging. You're talking about foreign interference and interference into electoral processes in a country like Britain. Israel has unbelievable influence there. So, I mean, that's that's just fact. But we, we can't have an honest conversation. That's where the real frustration is, Trish. Well, and it's dangerous, too, because... Um it's one thing for that to be theoretical, but we now are in a position where we can say less about Israel and Israel is really, really, really misbehaving. So this is the moment when we should be able to say a lot in good faith about Israel, but the people who do, it's happened to you, it's happened to me, it's happened to a lot of, of, of people who, you know their reputations suggest that clearly they're not anti-Semitic or 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 um, or prejudiced in any way. That it's it's actually a matter of policy, right? Um, but where where this is being leveled and the discussion is being shut down right at a time when people need to be saying, "Wow, Israel really needs to stop doing what they're doing." So and and what here's the other thing that scares me. Out of a lot of things that scare me. Do, does Bill Ackman and the other people, many of them in the Republican Party in America, not have feelings about the people in Gaza who are being slaughtered right now? Like, are they psychopaths? This, this is the kind of thing that really does keep me up at night. That they, that, that the Palestinians have now become so dehumanized that people can see this absolutely you know, cruel, the most cruel things, like the fourth ring of Wagnerian hell. And they're like, oh, they should have thought of that before, right? The other interesting thing I just want to get your take on too is um, Finkelstein. He has been everywhere, obviously. And um, I saw him say on a show a couple of weeks ago something very, very interesting that kind of broke my heart. And he looked like he was going to cry when he said it. He said, everybody had given up on Gaza until October 7th. And he said, I had given up on Gaza. And he felt ashamed 
of that and the Palestinians more generally, obviously. And now I think he would go to the opening of an envelope. He's doing, he never says no to an interview. He's losing weight. He looks exhausted, but he's carrying this really, really important message. And I think if somebody like Norman Finkelstein has given up on arguing for the Palestinians, I'm sure out of frustration and just feeling like we're not getting anywhere here, um, that sort of tells you how far off the radar it had fallen and how much the October 7th events have actually put it back onto the radar. Did you notice that about him? Uh, yeah, well, uh, listen, Norm, Norm is, uh, you know, should be canonized as, as a saint uh, for, for his Spartan yeah. efforts. But um, it, but the, the, here's the here's the real issue here. And this was actually brought up by uh, Gilad Atzman, who is a, another great uh, dissident, former Israeli, former Jewish Israeli, has denounced his political identities and affiliations and whatnot. Uh, happens to be a world-class jazz musician and not a bad writer um, as well. But he said that yeah. the problem is the, the, you have this this inordinate load on the shoulders of uh, Jewish uh, dissidents because they're the only ones who are given license uh, in this uh, this cutthroat uh, political environment where everybody could be accused of being an anti-Semite. Yeah. Only a Jewish dissenter can really make the case in public. So th yep. they're taking they're taking the whole load media-wise. Norm Finkelstein being one of those key people. Uh, you mentioned Naomi Wolf as well. I think she said some very encouraging and passionate things about this issue too. Yeah. Um, she's uh, uh, cer certainly somebody I, I have great respect for on a number of different levels, but they shouldn't, it, it, it becomes an intra-Jewish um, dialogue or uh, and it's not expanded out into a normal uh, dialogue that you'd have with other countries that might be uh, facing these issues like genocide and so forth. So it's, it, does, it ceases to become political and you have to kind of adhere to these uh, very constrained identity politics positions of who can be uh, uh, the, the opposition and who um, is going to be listening and so forth. Th that's the problem. And, and we need to break free of this because this, I think the Palestinians are the ones who are suffering from this, not just Norman Finkelstein from having to be on media all the time. Sure. He, he yeah. needs people to help carry the load. Yeah. He's doing yeah. a great job, but it's, it, that's the problem. And I think this suits Israel that only a few people, People will be given license in Western media to speak uh, against them, and I and I, I do think it suits the, uh, the, the 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 criminals that are perpetrating these crimes against humanity, and this is part of the game. This is part of yeah, the game. Yeah, it's so true. And I will tell you, even in my own show booking, the guests I have on, I had Larry Wilkerson on this week, and I don't think he is Jewish at all, but 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 I thought about it because you don't get any editorial cover if you have someone on who's not Jewish. But, but so here, here, just so people understand, because we do come in for so much criticism right now, it's very, very difficult. People are peeling off my show. I mean, I think I'm probably even losing money over it. Supporters are peeling off. Um, but, but Larry Wilkerson ticks another box and that's that he's a, he's a military expert. So I can bring him in to make those criticisms. Right. But, but you're right. The pool of people we, we choose from is, is getting quite small. It is small. And so I have personally in the last 48 hours just made the decision that I'm so upset 
that I'm just going to do what I always do editorially, and that is what I think is right. And clearly, you've been doing that too. But but I, I'm not going to just book people because I get some kind of political cover. And I, I admit I was sort of doing that a bit. I, I just want to say, I don't know if you've seen the um, Chris Hedges speech he gave about a couple, three weeks ago. He just, I think, come back from Egypt. I think he'd gone to the Raffigate or he was going to the mm -hmm. Raffigate. And he did this thing, which you as a journalist will understand. And it affected me deeply as someone who'd been in legacy media for, for and had covered a little bit of the Middle East and Palestinians. He wrote a letter to the children of Gaza and he started crying as he was reading it. And he said, history will show that we let you down. And he apologized and he said that all journalists should go now to the Rafa gate and stand there and demand to be let in to cover the story. And I was very, very moved by that. You know, that, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's great that Chris did that and it was the right thing to do. And of course he's yeah. correct in that position. Uh, I, you know, but you know, I mean, on one hand, it's 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 admirable and it's certainly the right thing to say. Um, on the other hand, um, mm. I, I will uh, borrow I'll borrow a quote from uh, maybe somebody a little more strident uh, on that. Um, that uh, on the, oh, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think what we need to do is 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 take is take the fight to our government um especially the united states has the ability to end it in a in a minute because all of those jdam bombs and all of those bunker busters and all those munitions are coming from the united states israel's admitted if the united states stopped arming them with ammunition that they wouldn't be able to continue the air assaults okay so that's kind of yeah. the, the so much leverage in washington on this and they're so supine on this and i i think rather than just accepting defeat uh, you have to do. Uh, you, you have to rage against this this system here, and and I know. Well, we, we all know Joe Biden's a psychopath, right? We know that, and we know he's demented too, and a psychopath, sure, and probably sure. corrupt. So I, I don't know. Like he, <laughs> how much more bad can it be before people start influencing what this guy does for a li like does in his foreign policy? I mean, it's it's shocking that he is is getting away with it. I just wanted to, to say shocked. one. Yeah, they they have to be shocked into sure. in, into taking some kind of a corrective action. This that's yeah. the Democrats, this this administration, their Security Council, Jake Sullivan, these people like that. That's yeah. what needs to happen. I don't know how to do that though. I don't know how to do it either. I keep trying. Like I, my latest piece for Substack is is called "Our Humanity Died in the Rubble," and um, I'll, I'll just tell you quickly the inspiration for it, I've been searching for a way to humanize, and I can't get through to people. And um, when I heard that the poet and academic Rifat Al-Arir um, had been killed in Gaza, I was very moved. He'd pinned a poem to his Twitter slash X account that's quite beautifully translated into a million languages. And But I think preaching to the choir. I don't think Rifat's poem is going to change any minds particularly i think the people reading it probably are already there but what i in reading about rifat i i read that he was still under the rubble mm. and and i thought wow like it, it just there was something about the idea of someone who now 
is a person for me, right? I, I watched his TEDx. I, I watched him teach a T.S. Eliot poem class at the Islamic University of Gaza. These are all things you can find of this, this guy on YouTube. And, and so once you see a living human being reduced to somebody lost in the rubble and irretrievable, apparently, because the Israelis are, the IDF is shooting very heavily around this area in Shujaya where it happened, same area where those three hostages were killed on, I believe, Friday, waving a white mm -hmm. flag, so that no one can go in and get Rifat. He's trapped almost poetically in the rubble of this building that represents the rubble of his country. And I started investigating how do we normally dig people out of the rubble, right? So I, I went and I found a story of a guy who'd climbed out of the, the Twin Towers in New York when they crumbled. He actually found, he crawled like many stories out toward a pinhole of light and he got out. And, and the story about him is that he gets out and he's quite banged up, but all he wants to do is go home. He has to go home. And it's like when we hurt ourselves, oh, just get, just take me home, you know? And, and that said to me something that explained also why the Palestinians aren't just going to the refugee camps where they'd be safe. Even if they could get there, they don't want to. They want to be and live and die in what they consider their home. It is their home. The way soldiers on the battlefield wish they were dying at home. We all share that. And then the other story I found about rubble and digging people out was written about that surfside apartment building in Florida. You remember it collapsed on those people? The whole thing came down and there were like 100 people trapped or something. They brought in to try to dig people out the most sophisticated, equipment in the world to that steaming rubble heap to get them out. And when they couldn't get all the people out, they hardly got anybody out. They did collect mementos. They at least got that. And I thought, okay, so here we have in Gaza, thousands, apparently thousands of people under the rubble, UTR, under the rubble. And the people there are digging them out with their bare hands with shovels. And I've also seen a few things shot by Al Jazeera of them having a couple of power tools like a drill and that. But they don't have the big gear that we use on other people when they're trapped in the rubble. So we've written off all of these thousands of people that we can't see. They don't have names. There's no pictures. Remember the pictures of the Israeli hostages that were being put up all over the world? Rightly yeah. so. Of course, we should remember the hostages. Can you, aside from Rifat Al-Arir, name a single person or have seen a photograph of a single person trapped under the rubble in Gaza? And imagine what that death is like, right? Like you might be injured, but not dead, and they can't get to you. And you're maybe calling a muffled scream out from under the rubble, hoping someone will, but they don't. So you maybe you lie there for five or six days in agony, in the dark, dying that's what's happening in gaza right now and the yeah, ones I'll, they pull out are missing limbs and all kinds of other horrible things that are happening but i don't know if it's humanizing them that was my little mission with that piece i'm, I'm not sure it's going to work but well, I, I couldn't stop myself 
Yeah, the dark black pill on that is that uh, his building was targeted because they knew his location. The IDF have been targeting journalists as well. You know, I know it does, that is pretty dark, but um, this is actually the case uh, that's been shown with journalists. And there's been too many journalists as well um, who've been killed uh, in the last eight weeks. But um, 80, just, just I think. 80, 80 or something. yeah. So yeah. we're going to go to break in a second, Trish. But uh, okay. before we do, when I, when you were talking about Chris Hedges um, yeah. and his plea there at the Rafa Gate, and 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 he's right, he's absolutely correct in that sense. But I I I think what's needed is a little more James Baldwin, and James Baldwin had the famous quote. He said, uh, "I I never have been in despair about the world." only enraged. I've been enraged by the world, but never despair. I cannot afford to despair. You can't tell the children that there is no hope. End of quote. The great American dissident James Baldwin, uh, who is definitely a source of inspiration in times like this. So, I mean, we need to be enraged and we need to not let it up uh, until things change because there's just too much despair to go around. But the Palestinians themselves, uh, their their spirits are and their resilience is unbelievable. But uh, I'm here with Trish Wood, author, and we're going to talk more about uh, her recent article on Substack as well as her book, too, on the other side. I'm Patrick Hennigson, your host. You're listening and watching TNT, today's news talk with be right back with his expert analysis and opinion this is tnt radio's timothy shea in a shocking development that surprised no one hunter biden failed to show up for his congressional deposition today moreover california representative eric swallowswell aided and abetted hunter thumbing his nose at the congress by working with hunter's attorney so hunter could avoid testifying Will Hunter be held in contempt of Congress? Well, if so, so what? So was Eric Holder. Nothing was done. But you see, when Democrats are in charge and they hold somebody in contempt of Congress, well, their door gets busted down. They get taken out at 5 a.m. with CNN there to broadcast the whole proceedings the way Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, and Alex Jones were treated. Will Hunter be treated the same way? (laughs) You funny man. Of course he won't. But if there's any justice in the world, Santa won't be bringing Hunter another laptop this Christmas. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Prescription drug pricing points to corporate Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, there are real threats to press freedom and your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. ProtectPressFreedom.org On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. 
All right, welcome back. Welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast. So pleased that you're staying with us on this Monday. And uh, on the line right now uh, with us is author uh, Trish Wood. She's uh, penned a very good piece. I think everybody should read it. I posted it into the TNT chat community. It says, Our Humanity Dies Under the Rubble who we dig for from the Twin Towers to Gaza. It's a very evocative piece, uh, Trish, and, and and we need more pieces like this uh, because we need to be able to step back and sort of you know take a breath and try to take in what's going on and put it into some kind of perspective. I think that's what you, you've attempted to do with this this piece here and um yeah. these more more of a reflective look at because it's how long has it been now it's what we're in the ninth week now i think mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. since october 7th so yeah yep. but uh, and i said i i i said i think on day three uh what are we going to do when we hit twenty thousand? Will that be enough? And I think we've just hit, or we're about to hit twenty thousand, or something. We've hit, yeah. yeah. According we've to hit. some estimates, we've hit twenty-five thousand, but um, let's just say twenty. Yeah. 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 And, and, and of course, this is another one of the propaganda tools. You know, whenever the mainstream media tries to use a number like that, although they're getting smarter about it, someone says, "Oh, those are that's Hamas. Those are Hamas health ministry. They're no." It's just no. Everybody takes them seriously. Nobody doesn't take those numbers seriously, and most people actually think they're low. But this is the, this to use your word, Hasbara, you know, the the very, very highly evolved Israeli propaganda ministry, and there are jillions of Twitter accounts who will pop into your, your timeline with some inane remark, but it's just enough to get certain people to swerve back into the pro-Israel lane, right? The, the pro-bombing campaign lane. It's really exhausting. I just block them now. I never blocked anybody in Twitter. I, like I have in the last two months, I'm, I'm blocking like five people a day because they're, they're like low number, fake name, propaganda accounts, probably from the Hasbara room somewhere in mm-hmm. Tel Aviv or something, you know? It's awful. I blocked, I blocked 200 uh, in the last 24 hours. Are so, you kidding? Oh, well, they're probably after you. Yeah. Yeah, but the, 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 yeah. The, but I have experience in this field uh, with NAFO. Uh, NAFO is the largest trolling operation in the history of the internet, which was run by NATO um, to to do information <laughs> ops on the Ukraine war. And I blocked okay. one thousand five hundred NAFO accounts. But but Igor Lopatinok, the great filmmaker, uh, Ukrainian American filmmaker, blocked I think twenty three thousand NAFO accounts. Yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. It is exhausting. I know. And you were the first, like, you were the first guy to question the 40 beheaded babies, which became a bit of an obsession of mine. I did a whole piece on it. And then, and I used to work for the CBC Fifth Estate show that broke the story on the phony incubators uh, for the Kuwait-Iraq war thing. Uh, it was all ginned up by the the Kuwaiti ambassador, and it was his daughter who'd given the false testimony. There's always a fake story for war. We know this. And um, people don't understand why that's important. It's the 40 beheaded babies. There's the baby in the oven is false, ripping the baby out of the woman's stomach. No, tying the children together. None of that stuff happened, right? So people say, well, why do you, you know, first of all, I was accused of Holocaust denying. I'm sure you were too. But the point is that that it does matter because those, especially the 40 beheaded babies, that was the initial salvo to gin up a bloodlust and to tie not just Hamas, but Palestinian people more generally 
to ISIS, right? That is what they did. That is what they intended to do. So it matters if, I, I'm sure atrocities were committed. I have not seen that tape. I would like to see the tape. Uh, it doesn't seem to show any of I've the seen, really- I've seen the tape. I've seen oh. the tape. It, it's it's highly unremarkable. Um, mm. And a lot of the clips on there, two of them that I know have been debunked as coming from another time and another war somewhere. Okay, so that's, the, that's in their official- propaganda wheel which they atrocity highlight reel which they give to yeah. to western journalists they don't give it yeah. to them they show it to them they won't give it to them and uh and it's got yeah. debunked material on it so like at that point i'm questioning everything that's yeah. coming out of the israeli government yeah well it's probably i'm sure there was a let's just say maybe a couple things happen I, there's the sh the guy with the shovel trying to i think behead a thai worker that, which that, i that, knew that was that, that that's not even that can't even be proven or or, or uh basically tagged to that location or that time so i've done forensics yeah, yeah, on yeah. on media yeah. for years and also i follow people who do forensics and and even criticizing uh forensic architecture of bellingcat for instance um yes. so we've been involved with this with syria really intensely for 10 years and that that's that's a typical one you got to show me you got to prove that what you're looking at actually is from the time and place that you say it is and they can't and they can't. so that, and also yeah. also here's the other thing just sorry patrick but i after i was a legacy media journalist and then i wrote a book about the iraq war and then i did a decade at doing true crime documentaries like really heavy mm. serious true crime documentaries where i learned all about forensic medicine and and doing autopsies and what crime scenes say right so so that was the other level of scrutiny i brought to the claims that because bodies were burned it doesn't mean they were burned by hamas and in fact if you look at the bodies, they look like they were burned maybe by these Hellfire missiles that the helicopters, that the IDF were That's very likely what it was. But what, what bugs me about how that was used and how the media lapped it up was they brought absolutely no critical thinking to it whatsoever. They totally drank the Kool-Aid and they saw the film and then they were like, oh my God, I've just suffered through this terrible thing. I'm sure it's horrible to watch. It's it's I'm sure it's, you know, kind of like gross to see um but what does it actually prove about the events of that day you know and you said it like there's no we don't know that the video is authentic we don't know that the bodies were killed the way they say they were killed by the people who they said killed them i mean none of that would ever get past a court of law but it didn't need to it was meant to dehumanize Hamas and therefore the Palestinians and in that way it absolutely worked and the people like you and me who raised questions about it have been attacked by I mean I thought wow people should really want to know I have this experience to debunk propaganda and I understand how you look at things forensically and how things are used and people weren't grateful for that they were mad at me for doing it and I'm sure you got the same same response. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because I'm I've been hit with those those attacks from even mainstream media before, um, for especially during the Syrian conflict. But that that what you talked about the bloodlust, you know, it's really blood libel they've done. So all those attacks yeah. that are coming at you, Trish, or coming at anybody else questioning or exposing mainstream or government uh, information on this, mm -hmm. or have a mm -hmm. varying opinion or support Palestinians, that anger, the violent hate that's coming from the Israeli side is predicated on 
that propaganda that they themselves have been inculcated with. So it's a yeah. vicious cycle. This is like a vicious cycle. And I just think it's such a high, the, the, the level of evil uh, from the government uh, point of view, where I don't know how to explain it, but just putting stuff out there that's provably false uh, in order to demonize the Palestinians. People have died. Arguably, you could say even the pilots that dropped those bombs are motivated by the lies that they were told about October 7th. Absolutely. So, the pilots are in their early 20s, they're 24, yeah. 25, 26 years old. That, so that's the reality of it. And so this this evil upon evil compounding uh, on this. And this is why it's so important to be skeptical and to question the provenance of what you're looking at. The way you're talking about forensic and the true crime stuff, Trish, you know now that the bar of proof for even an assault case or you know a murder case of one individual in America or Canada or a place like that is a higher yeah. bar of proof than the bar of proof that's required to unleash a genocide against a whole group of people, and the numbers are staggering. To well put said. that in perspective, yeah. it's crazy if you think yeah. about it. We're a civilized society, right? I thought. Well, yeah, and I think what this is proving, and maybe the reason that you and I are as unsettled as we are, and I am really unsettled, uh, is is because uh, something is being revealed to me that I didn't think I would ever see in my lifetime. Now, I said that about COVID-19 and the authoritarianism around that, and I had friends, and we said, wow, this, like, look how quickly democracy falls look how quickly our neighbors are thinking us out look at how quickly right this i now get it i now understand how these things have happened historically and i thought that was a one-off but now i'm seeing it only times 10 because this isn't just about authoritarianism it's about kind of like a mob bloodlust attack on people who are kind of they're sort of caged i mean Dropping bombs on the Palestinians is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, to use a really crude analogy, because they can't go anywhere. And they're not armed particularly, I mean, Hamas is, but the people, I mean, they, they can't, there's no protection for them. I mean, it's really, really scary. Can I just say one thing I saw today? Maybe you saw it. Gideon sure. Levy's piece okay. uh, in Haaretz in Israel 20,000 Gazans are responsible for their own deaths. I've never been so ashamed, he says. Journalist Ben Caspit epitomizes the Israeli center. He talks about how he's a very highly successful guy. Over the weekend, the executive director of the anti-occupation group Breaking Silence wrote on X, don't look away, a CNN correspondent entered the southern, southern Gaza Strip and opened up a window on the hell of Gaza. This is what Caspet, a moderate and decent person in his own eyes, had to say in response. Why should we look? They earned their hell. Honestly, I don't have an ounce of sympathy. Caspet, as usual, is the mouthpiece of Israel's mainstream yeah, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. Pretty Look, shocking. we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up, Trish. Um, maybe we can continue this conversation. But I want to plug your book, uh, which is available on Amazon as well, which I think is an important read along these lines. What was asked of us in oral history of the Iraq War by the soldiers who fought it? That is by Trish Wood, our guest today, Trish. And uh, I'm thinking you probably can have a follow up as well to even that work uh, in the coming months, perhaps. Yeah. 
I, I, I think so. I mean, I'm just going to keep cranking out essays on Gaza for now and hope that at some point, I don't even know what the mop-up of this thing is going to look like, but there will be a big story about October 7th itself. You and I know that. And eventually there'll be whistleblowers coming forward and we'll, we'll learn the truth. And there'll be a lot of people with a big morality hangover, I hope. Yeah, ceasefire is what we need ASAP. St still yeah. holding out hope for that. And uh, yeah, that's what needs to happen. Trish Wood, author. Thank you for joining us. And also, Trish, follow her on social media as well. We tagged her, uh, Trish uh, Wood Reporting, on t X Twitter and your podcast as well uh, and your show, Trish. Uh, people want to tune into that. Thanks, Patrick. Keep on going. Thank you. I'll Thank see you, you on social media, I guess. <laughs> see you yeah, on I'll see you on spaces. I'll see you on spaces. Yeah. Just uh, drop me a DM so we can link up and I'll share some of those good spaces with you. Everybody should be on X Twitter spaces. This is a great resource. Use it while we still have it. Who knows yeah. in the censorship environment. Big thank you to, of course, Trish Wood, but also in the first hour, Sam Husseini, uh, the great journalist as well. We'll follow up on the genocide convention later this week. There'll be a campaign probably. It's already it looks like it's moving on social media. So that's something to follow and look forward to. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. That's all we got time for today, but stay on TNT. Today's news talk. There's more to come 24-7, 365. That's what it's all about here. Take care, you guys. I'll see you tomorrow.